Hello everybody, welcome to the UK Packers podcast. As usual, I'm your host at NFL on Twitter and of course follow the group at UK Packers. And as usual, I have another heavyweight of the media world um, in here to try make sense of what's going on. The man is Mike Spofford and you all know him from uh, Packers.com, from all of his coverage, uh, all of the videos, podcasts, dailies, uh, insider inbox. Um, I'm missing nothing else, Mike. You weren't like a, a freelance model back in you know 1997, or you didn't sort of you know win the Tour de France or anything like that. Any any more accomplished stuff? Are you <laughs> solely speaking to Packers right now? Is that what no. we're doing? Yeah, I mean, no, I've been uh, been in the sports writing business for uh, gosh, it's uh, almost almost a quarter century now. So, uh, um, but yeah, I've been with the Packers since 2006, and uh, um, covered the Packers off and on in some different capacities in uh, my newspaper days. So probably my the big highlight of the early stages of my career was when I was at Super Bowl 32 yeah. to cover the Packers and Broncos, the Favre Elway Super Bowl, and uh, um, you know my career kind of went from there. Well, here's a question for you, uh, Mike. Now, I know we've had you on the podcast a couple of times, and if anybody else doesn't know um, who you are, then we just have to feel sorry for these people because, <laughs> I mean, you're all over <laughs> Packers.com. I mean, where are these people? Where are you getting your news from? Um, when you're So you go from journalism into the Packers, and I guess this is a double barrel question in a way. It seems like a dream job, but I was a saxophone player, and then when I had to go and study it classically, it just sucked the life out of it to a degree. I mean, so obviously you're you know a, a local lad. We've we've discussed that before. You love the Packers, but does covering the Packers in so much detail, number one, kind of take away some of the enjoyment of covering them because it it is a job for you now. Um, and I guess, can you look at NFL or football outside of this and, and still see the enjoyment? Or do you break it down to such a granular level that it's not really an entertainment where you sit down and have a beer with the boys? It, you know, you sort of, you understand it much deeper than that and you can sort of get that image out of your head. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, for me, I guess it's all about how my brain is wired and I, I enjoy watching football, whether I'm covering a game for my job or whether I'm, sitting at home and I'm not working, I really enjoy watching the game. I love the game. But um, the the thing that doesn't change is the way my brain works. And even when I'm at home and I'm not on the job and I'm watching the game, uh, you know, my brain is always thinking about, you know, what would be the questions I would ask the players or the coaches yeah. afterwards? Oh, this is the key moment. This is how I, you know, this is what I would focus my story on, or this is what I'd want to find out more about because I think this is, this was the key moment or the key one or two moments that that really influenced the game and and the outcome. So that part of my brain I can I can never turn off. It's just it's how I watch the game and how I process it. Um, so in that respect, I don't, I don't, uh, uh, I guess I don't always think about it in the way that uh, in the way that fans do. Like I'll. I'll you know, something will be going on in the fourth quarter and I'll still be thinking back to, you know, something really important that happened in the second quarter because it seems so influential and, uh, um, and you know, how that is going to frame, you know, my perception of the game and how I think about it and how I analyze it. It's just, uh, it's just kind of the nature of, uh, of how my brain works, I guess. 
which you're very lucky to have because sometimes I will watch a game and then the game will be over and I wouldn't be able to tell you what the score is, what happened and whatever. And I almost have to go back and do that sort of, you know, breakdown play by play and, and do it, especially when Mike McCarthy was under fire um, from from a lot of people, especially in the fan base. You know, some of the stuff that I was looking at, I was like, OK, well, this isn't play calling. This is, you know, certain things were happening at certain times. And I tried to break it down that way just to see exactly what was going on um, behind the scenes. Now, you said there that, you know, you think about all these questions that you'd like to ask the players. Does it get frustrating sometimes? Or I don't know if the players are a bit sort of looser with you to a degree because you work for the organization. But when you talk to players, is it very hard to get out of players now? You know exactly how they feel about something because, you know, they're they're more worried about, you know, a PR disaster or, or something to do with their image, especially in this sort of fast paced social media world. Do you still see the value in being able to talk to players and getting their perspective about things? Yeah, there's definitely some value in it. I think uh, the longer the longer you do this, you just have to go about it the right way. I mean, you know, no, no player is going to, uh, you know, want to throw his teammate under the bus, so to mm. speak. I mean, if something something bad happened, it's it's always it's always more about, you know, trying, trying to get at maybe some of the other reasons that something happened as opposed to, you know, this one guy just happened to screw up, you know, well, I mean, what, well, what was, what was the reason for that? Or how's, uh, you know, how is, how is he handling that? How's he going to bounce back from it? You know, that, that kind of thing. So if you, if you go about it in the right way, you can, you can still, you can get players to, uh, um, you know, to really be honest about some of that stuff, but at the same time, they're going to be guarded. They're not, they're mm-hmm. not going to completely, uh, open up that, you know, especially in the, in the heat of the moment after a game. I mean, you know, yeah, guys are going to be, guys are going to be upset at, you know, teammates at times that screw up, but they're going to, they're going to check themselves. They're not going to want to, um, they're not going to want to take out their frustrations on any teammate you know, in the media, they're going to, they're going to watch what they say. And, and uh, so it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a line to walk. I mean, you, you just, you have to go about it in the right way to, uh, to really at least try to get at, uh, at some of the, you know, some of the feelings, some of the reactions as to, uh, as to how guys are feeling after, after whether it's something great that happens in a big victory or whether Mm -hmm. it's a, a tough defeat. Yeah, I suppose it's like you say, it's it's the right questions and coming at it from the right angle, I guess, you know, because you're never going to go up and say to someone like, oh, how badly did that player screw up? Because they're never going to say it. And in fact, I remember holding my breath before because we had Greg Jennings on the podcast and he was in the media, you know, recently enough sort of talking trash about, you know, past players and all the rest. And I really didn't want him to go down that avenue because I was kind of like, I don't want this to be uh, a podcast that, oh, we've got the inside scoop. Look what he says about him. Didn't want it. Just did not want that at all. But speaking of honesty, I think someone who hit the headlines recently for for being how honest they were, and I, and he's got an awful lot of flack for it on on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, but I I personally loved it. I think because I just like to see that sort of honesty coming out and someone being very personable. Um, is Mark Murphy during the uh, Matt Lafleur, um, you know, being unveiled to unveiled to the public, and and Matt himself was sort of you know very calm and very reserved himself. Um, what are your first sort of impressions, Mike, of Matt LaFleur? Um, and how do you think that he's going to sort of change the organization from within? Because we see an awful lot of, you know, fresh young guys now. Matt LaFleur, Nathaniel Hackett as well is, is 39. So, you know, is he the injection of energy that this team needs to really kick on now in 2019? Well, that's certainly what the Packers are, are counting on is, uh, you know, it's it's a combination of, you know, going with uh, going with, 
a fresh face and, you know, the energy of a young leader. And then also, uh, potentially the, you know, a change in the offensive system, some newer, fresher ideas for the offense for Aaron Rodgers in, in many ways, I think to, to challenge Aaron Rodgers, to try to really, really push and try to get the best out of Rodgers over what will probably be the last, I guess I would say last third of his career, say if he's going to play four or five more years. Mm. So, um, I think, uh, I, I think there's, uh, um, I think there's an approach here to, uh, to try to challenge Rogers to really maximize on, uh, on what they have left of, uh, of this hall of fame career. And they're counting on, uh, on LaFleur as, as a young coach who can, who can connect with him, develop that relationship with him, bring him new and fresh ideas for the offense that he can apply mm-hmm. those hall of fame talents to and, and see where it goes. Now, nobody knows, whether this is going to work out or not, we won't know until the games get started, uh, you know, eight months from now, um, just what it's going to look like and, you know, how much of a transition period will, will there be before, you know, hopefully Aaron Rodgers is, is back to playing like the MVP that, uh, that he's been at other stages of his career. Um, there are no guarantees with this at all, but, um, this is this is the approach the Packers have have uh, chosen to take, and uh, they're very confident that they found the right guy to uh, to get this done. And now he's in the process of obviously filling out his coaching staff, trying to surround himself with you know the people that he thinks are going to be able to uh, to help him the most in in that mission. And have you had to do a deep dive then onto? You know what Matt Lafleur has done in the past, and and what Nathaniel Hackett's done in the past with the with the Jaguars. Now I know on your podcast you've sort of you've you've touched on it with with these two guys, but um, what's the sort of overarching signature do you think of these two guys that we should expect to see in the coming season? Is it sort of you know is it a mirror image of what Mike Pettin's doing on defense, where he likes to look multiple and confuse? Um, offenses is this the type of offense that we're going to see like sort of more trick plays and more dynamic plays um because it certainly seems like these two guys have got an awful lot out of um you know a talent pool that was either you know heavily injured um you know very young um someone who we're seeing as kind of like and again i don't want to do with the service to the players i said that they're subpar we all know that these players are you know the upper echelon of NFL players but they wouldn't be the aaron Rodgers and the say the Devonte adams of of where they were at do we have sort of an overarching signature as to what these guys are going to be getting at when they do hit the field yeah i mean it's tough to say but the the early impressions that i get it's interesting that you would draw the comparison to Petten because one of the things that he said when he first came in was um the idea of using a lot of the same personnel on the field but uh, and 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 making alignments and everything look the same as far as what they're what it looks like they're going to do on defense, but then they do some different things um, after the ball is snapped to try to uh, um, to try to keep the opponent off balance. I kind of get the sense that that Matt Lafleur takes the same approach to offense, where he's going to have some some similar. Uh, personnel groups some similar formations but then a lot of varieties out of that so um the opponent can't necessarily say okay this is the personnel on the field this is how they're lining up it's going to be you know one of like say two or three different plays i get the impression that Lafleur might have 
five or six different plays out of one position group or, you know, one personnel group or one formation that, uh, you know, that really is going to force the defense to, uh, to stay on its toes. Now that's, that's a really very broad, wide open, you know, generalization as to, uh, as to what this might look like. But again, it's also about what personnel you have and, and, you know, obviously guys, guys staying healthy so that, you know, Devonte Adams is out there for, you know, 75 snaps a game for 16 games and, you know, players like that who are, uh, who, you know, they, they need to be, they need to be available all the time for the multiplicity to work. If you, you know, if you follow, because, uh, um, because otherwise the more you have to, the more you have to substitute due to injury and all that kind of stuff. It's what any, it's what any coach runs into, then, um, then the more limited you become because, uh, because you have younger players who maybe, you know, their knowledge of the offense isn't as expansive. And so the playbook shrinks a little bit, all of that kind of stuff. So, um, but that's, that's the general sense I get as to, uh, as to how LaFleur wants to approach the offense. As far as Hackett, I mean, you have to look at, uh, you know, the amount of, um, um, I guess I would say stress on the run game. He is, uh, you know, he is used, you know, in 2017 with, with the Jaguars, that, uh, that was the number one rushing offense in the league. And it led them to being, you know, number five in the league. I believe it was in points, number six in the league in total yards. And it's because they had the number one rushing offense in the league. They piled up a ton of yards on the ground, a lot of rushing touchdowns, all of that kind of stuff. So, you know, how that, uh, um, how that kind of applies or gets married to, uh, you know, what LeFleur wants to do and what the Packers have at running back with Aaron Jones and Jamal Williams. Maybe they add another running back in the draft this year. We'll see, uh, what happens there. So, um, there, there's just a lot of, a lot of possibilities here. And, uh, you know, for me to, to sit here and try to predict exactly what it's going to look like would be, would be foolish because these coaches, um, you know, none of these guys, um, none of these guys have, have worked with, uh, well, certainly Hackett hasn't worked with a quarterback on the level of Aaron Rodgers. You've had, you know, Matt LaFleur has worked with, uh, you know, Matt Ryan when he won the MVP in Atlanta in 2016 and obviously worked with Jared Goff in Los Angeles as well. So, um, you know, but again, Aaron, you know, Aaron Rodgers is going to be able to do some things and provide some options for these coaches that maybe they haven't explored in the past. And that's what that's what's kind of exciting about it. Yeah, it's it's really going to be a, a brainstorming of just offensive genius, I hope, you know, with these two uh, younger guys. And it's interesting as well that, you know, with Nathaniel Hackett then coming in, what support that he will give to engineering and designing plays, but he won't be calling them, whereas Matt LaFleur will, with him having only one year of doing it. Um, so I just, I don't know how that dynamic is going to uh, work out. Obviously, we all hope very well. And I think the dynamic is interesting as well, Mike, that, you know, Hackett is so, um, I don't know if I, you would say run focused. Maybe there was a, a reason for that because they had to lean on the run uh, based on their quarterback situation, wherever he was at or, or whatever was going sure. on there. But, you know, it's interesting that a guy so run intensive comes in and has to sell an offense to Aaron Rodgers, who's obviously going to want to grip and rip, you know. So I, I just wonder how they're going to get that balance going. But I think when they do, it, it should certainly have all the ingredients of a really potent offense, which I guess... Um, brings us to the defensive side where it's going to be you know more of the same of what we saw last year were you super impressed by what Mike Pettin was able to do at what he had and do you think that our main focus in the draft should be some sort of pass rush 
Well, I was cer- I was certainly impressed with what Petten was able to do and the strides that I saw in defense, especially with uh, the injuries and the constant shuffling of personnel that he had to deal with. I think we saw in years past when the injuries really hit hard on the defensive side of the ball. The uh, um, you know the Packers were really at a at a disadvantage there, and I thought you know with a lot of changing personnel throughout the course of the year, I thought Petten's defense kept the Packers in a lot of games gave them a chance to, you know, to win some games, didn't let um, some games get out of hand that could have based on how deep, you know, he had to dig into the depth chart with, uh, with certain players. And, and all of these, all of the young players in particular, when you're talking about, you know, your Kevin King and Jair Alexander and Kenny Clark and Kyler Fackrell and, and guys like that, you know, now that they're going to be, progressing into the the second year in this new system as opposed to learning it for the first time um you know that should uh uh open up some some more possibilities i I think there's definitely um a lot more progress that the defense can make personnel wise yeah i mean you, you you'd like to be able to get after the quarterback more consistently without necessarily have having to to send the extra rushers i mean it was it was impressive that that Blake Martinez as an inside linebacker had, you know, five sacks this past mm-hmm. year. But at the same time, you know, that means that that's, that's an inside linebacker having to blitz quite a bit because, you know, your, your, your traditional mm-hmm. four man rush maybe isn't necessarily getting the job done as consistently as, as you need it to. And, you know, I, I, I still think, you know, I'm, I still think old school in a lot of ways, as far as this game is concerned, and certainly on defense, the more consistently you can pressure a quarterback with only four guys up front, at least seven guys in coverage, it's it's a numbers game that puts your defense at an advantage. If you have to send that fifth rusher, that sixth rusher, yeah, you might be able to hurry the quarterback a little bit and get the ball out. You might get some sacks here and there, but you're also just leaving your back end so much more vulnerable. And, and uh, you know, any defensive coordinator would love to be able to just send four guys after the quarterback every play and uh, and consistently force that guy to get rid of the ball, um, you know, maybe a little faster than he wants to, but uh, but that's that's the uh, that's the secret to it. And I think the I think the Packers need to uh, the Packers need to find a way to uh, to have a more consistent pass rush from just uh, uh, just four guys, so that that back end doesn't uh, doesn't need to be left uh, too vulnerable at times. Yeah, and I think it's nice the way it's going to pan out. We've seen Jair Alexander, to me, was an absolute superstar. Kevin King, when he was playing, was um, was excellent. So to be able to see those two guys, and hopefully King can um, remain healthy then for a large part of the next season for us to properly get a look at these two lads work together. Um, because I guess it's like you say, our defensive line was decimated. Um, and then we've seen the success that Chicago had with Khalil Mack. And like you said, they didn't need to rush a whole lot with, with you know him and Akeem Hicks up front. They were basically getting the job done between the two of them, so which allowed their defense to kind of come away and dominate. And I guess speaking of this line and speaking of opponents like the the Chicago Bears, uh, we've lost James Campen, who was just uh, a huge asset to the offensive line. In my opinion, worked absolute wonders. He was given, you know, guys who, in the grander scheme of things, probably weren't seen as as top guys, and he's made just you know, uh, an iron curtain up there in front of Aaron Rodgers most times. Um, is that a concern, do you think, with, with Camp and Gone? And can you give the listeners just a little bit of a flavor as to just what a great guy that he was, both personally and professionally, in the building there? Yeah, well, Campy was, 
he's he's as down to earth as it gets for uh as far as um you know a coach in this league and somebody who is also a player in this league and been around this game for as long as he has um just a real a real personable guy you could you know you could strike up a conversation with him about just about anything he was um always very very well liked by his players but um but at the same time was always really demanding of them too and and wasn't he he was an assistant coach here for you know i believe it's 15 seasons total and that you know that that kind of a tenure as an assistant coach anywhere in the nfl doesn't happen very often so he deserves uh he deserves a ton of credit in that respect and uh and i think as as you said you know you alluded to in um in asking the question you look at you look at the history here there are a lot of teams that have spent first round draft picks on offensive linemen multiple mm-hmm. times over the years and James Campen was given two first round draft picks Brian Balaga in 2010 and Derek Sherrod in 2011 Sherrod actually being the very last pick of the first round because that was the year that you know the year after the Packers won the Super Bowl so yeah. it's the 32nd pick in the draft now injuries obviously um, and unfortunately ended Sherrod's career too early. But other than, other than Balaga, then, you know, everybody else has been, you know, a four, I mean, a lot of fourth round picks, Bakhtiari, Sitton and Lang were all fourth rounders. Corey Lindsley, a fifth rounder. JC Trevor was a fourth rounder. Um, he's had undrafted guys like Lane Taylor, who's a starter now. And uh, the job that he's, the job that he's done with those guys is, has been, uh, has been outstanding. I'm sure he's going to be, a great coach in Cleveland. Um, I mean, those of us around here who have known him for a long time, we're going to miss him around here. I know his, uh, his players, his offensive linemen are going to, uh, are going to, to miss him as well, but he's molded a lot of talent, uh, a lot of talent in that room. And, and, you know, those guys will, uh, they'll move on. They're, they're professionals. They'll, they'll get a new coach. They'll maybe get some, you know, some new, uh, you know, um, tips and, and suggestions and everything else to uh, to try to further their games. And we'll see from a schematic standpoint, you know, if they're asked to do some different things um, as far as the entire offensive system goes and all that. But, uh, but yeah, James Campen left a, um, he, he's, he's left uh, a legacy in, in a lot of ways with, uh, with this Green Bay Packers offensive line over the years, going back to, you know, even those, those, uh, last couple of years of Mike Sherman's tenure before Mike McCarthy became the head coach. Mm. Certainly seems tip for greatness anime. And, um, it obviously was very good at his job. I, I think, um, uh, you and, and Wes talked about it on the Packers unscripted podcast is that it's very hard to be a coach and not get sacked at some stage. And for him to be able to just walk away to, you know, a nice job up there in Cleveland, uh, I suppose is a testament to, to what type of professional and what type of guy he is. Um, I guess we, we can't really look forward, Mike, can we, um, to, to all of the good stuff and the exciting stuff in the in the next season without kind of having a, a really quick cursory glance, I guess, at what happened last season. Um, I'd Rob Domofsky in the podcast last week and we were kind of discussing, you know, was this foreseen what would happen last season? And I know an awful lot of the games were very, very close. We lost by a fumble or, you know, it, it could be put down to one play. Now, no, arguably nothing can be put down to one play. Um, it's it's everything leading up to that. And then, unfortunately, whoever makes that fatal error, like pulling a, you know, a Jenga brick, then you kind of get the blame. Um, but certainly over here, I mean, the bookmakers had the Packers as, you know, maybe second or third favorite to, to hoist the Lombardi Trophy. 
And then we see that Mark Murphy comes out in the press conference and starts talking about complacency. So I guess at the beginning of the season, would I be correct in saying that, and maybe you felt it too, that, you know, with the... with Mo Wilkinson coming in and Jimmy Graham coming in, that that stuff looked exciting on both sides of the ball with obviously extra additions to your Alexander and all the rest. And that as the season kind of wore on, it's, well, for us anyway, there was kind of a little bit of disbelief as to how disconnected things were. And then for the season to end the way it did was kind of a shock to everybody, including the bookmakers and including us here. From your perspective, do we have, you know, any information after the fact now to look back at last season and go, you know, this is kind of where it started to go wrong. Did McCarthy's message get stale? And did you get a sense that when you went into the locker room that there was sort of a lack of morale there and that people were suffering from shell shock to a degree or that there was complacency that had crept into the locker room? Yeah, I, you know, I don't know. I guess I guess I can't I, I can't speak to whether there was whether there was necessarily any any complacency in the locker room. Mm. What I, what I sensed as the season went along is there was just never, there was never that moment to, uh, you know, I mean, Aaron Rodgers talked about it as a galvanizing moment, yeah. but in, in my mind, I always, I always talk, I, you know, I always thought about it in terms of just a, just an energizing moment, a momentum changing, you know, type of moment. And it just seemed, it, it just seemed that that never, that, that never materialized. And as, you know, as you said, you know, a lot of, a lot of the close losses as those, as those piled up, um, it just, uh, it's, it's almost as though it, it became, it became such a big burden to try to get out from under because they just, they just could not win, could not win a close game. I mean, certainly the first, I mean, I'm looking at the schedule here at my, at my desk, you know, the, the week by week, I mean, the first six games before the bye week you know, you have the great comeback in week one to, to beat the Bears when everybody was wondering if, you know, is Rogers season even over in the first game, you know, yeah. with the knee injury and everything, but he comes back out, he beats the big comeback. Then in week two, you've got the Minnesota Vikings. They're the team everybody thought was going to win the NFC North again. You've got them beat, you, you know, the bad call on Clay Matthews, you end up, end up in a tie there. Um, but then, you know, the first two road trips of the season at Washington and at Detroit weeks three and week five, five, um, those, those were just not good performances in, in a lot of respects. I mean, certainly the first half of both of those games, the Packers put themselves in such a huge hole that you started to wonder, you know, like what is going on here? I mean, it's one thing to have one bad day, but then the second time you go on the road, you know, away from Lambeau field and you kind of play like that again. Mm. Um, And then even to the point where they had the last second victory on Monday night football over San Francisco heading into the bye week but that was a San Francisco team playing with a backup quarterback. They had to come back at the end, you know, and, and beat them at the wire. Mm. So they're just, there, there wasn't a whole lot of feeling as to just as to where things were going, but then it's like, okay, you've got the bye week. You've got this really tough stretch four road games in five weeks, Los Angeles, New England, Seattle, and Minnesota all on the road in a span of five weeks you got to find a way to, you know, to put it together and get something going. And, Mm. and, um, every single game when, you know, they, they were in position and, and had a chance to pull out something, you know, um, something would go wrong. You know, the Montgomery fumble against Los Angeles, the Aaron Jones fumble on the first play of the fourth quarter in new England. Um, you had, you know, 
third third and two in Seattle and the ball sticks to Rogers' hand. He throws it in the ground and McCarthy decides to punt on fourth and two and they don't get the ball back and you lose that one. You know, you go to Minnesota, you start out pretty well. You're you know, you're fourteen fourteen, I believe it was in the first half. And then in the second half you just get you just get completely dominated. I mean it was a the second half against a division rival that wasn't even a contest. Mm. And um it just felt to me that as as those losses piled up, it, the the search for the the change in momentum, um, the 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 weight of everything was was just too much. The the team couldn't get out from the team couldn't get out from under it. And then and then when they played so poorly against a a really struggling team in Arizona, you know, a Southwest warm weather team coming into Lambeau field in December and you end up losing a game just, you know, with, with a terrible performance. That was, that was really just rock bottom at that point. And obviously that's when they decided that's when Mark Murphy and Brian Gutekunst decided to make the, uh, the coaching change to see if there was anything that could, anything left that could be salvaged from the season. But it just really felt to me that the way the, the way those road games were lost after the bye week, that, um, that it was, it was just this weight on the team and on the locker room and on everybody involved that just kept getting heavier and heavier and heavier. And the heavier it got, the harder it got to, uh, you know, to get out from under it. And, and really they just never did. Yeah, which which goes to show, like that's why sports psychologists get so much money because <laughs> it's all about <laughs> mentality and and trying yeah. to bring yourself out of it and all the rest. We've all been on a golf yeah. course where the where it starts to go bad, Mike. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and and you look you look at it, Steve. I mean, honestly, you know, two two of the teams, two of the four teams that are still standing here as as we head into uh, AFC NFC Championship weekend in the NFL are the Rams and the Patriots, those two teams that the Packers played on the road after the bye week. And they were leading the Rams in the fourth quarter and should have had one opportunity with Aaron Rodgers at the end of the game to get, to try to get a field goal to win. And, you know, that didn't work out. And at new England on the road, they're tied 17, 17 mm-hmm. driving for the go ahead points in the four, at the start of the fourth quarter and Aaron Jones commits the first fumble of his, you know, of his NFL career. The kid hadn't, hadn't fumbled since he put on a Packers uniform and it just happened to come at a really bad time. So, you know, before things had really, really gone south, I mean, the Packers were playing two of the better teams in the league on the road and they were in position to beat both of them, but they didn't get the job done. And then, you know, those kinds of things have a, have a tendency to, uh, to, you know, snowball and, and, you know, become, uh, you know, the, the ball rolling the wrong way down the hill, so to speak. And, uh, and the Packers just could never turn it around after that. Yeah. And I mean, if that highlights anything to anybody, it's that the ingredients certainly are there with the right mindset and maybe with a couple of calls going our way, sometimes literally with that Clay Matthews uh, <laughs> Vikings one, sure. if that literally went our way, um, you know, it, we're not that far away. And if we add a few pieces and bring in some extra talent, I mean, it does show that, the team that Matt LaFleur and Nathaniel Hackett uh, and Mike Petten, I guess, for the second year has 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 gotten here now is a team that can really kick on and can contend as long as all the ingredients, I guess, are right and to strike that balance. Now, I don't know how someone does that when they come in new and there's an awful lot of new personnel and if you're getting new messages thrown at you all the time, you know, I, I guess it'll stand to see if if, you know, that will resonate with the players and that they'll kick on. But 
you know, these guys, I suppose, are used to it, aren't they, Mike? That they've went from college to the NFL, they've adjusted, they've got on with it. Um, so yeah, we'll just see uh, specifically Aaron Rodgers as to how um he will deal with it. But look, I know, I'm conscious that I've had you on the phone now, uh, chin wagon for ages. So I guess we close it out with a couple of questions. What I want to know is insider inbox. What are all the fans out there shooting? And what's the biggest uh, question that you're getting at the minute? And is there any questions that you get to the insider inbox that you're like, why do I keep getting this question over and over again? I'm not going to answer this question. I'm not in a position to answer this question. And this one is just downright silly. Yeah. Well, the the, the thing that people want to know is who are the Packers going to go after in free agency and who are they going to go after in the draft? And mm. the thing with free agency, I mean, it's still, uh, I believe, almost two months away, about seven weeks away before free agency actually starts. And so there's there's really no way to predict right now who's even going to be available because pending free agents, the teams the teams that they are on can be negotiating with them right now to you know to potentially get new contracts and sign them before they before they reach free agency. Um, you know, obviously franchise tags, things like that are going to um, go out on certain players in February when that date rolls around. So to sit here and say, oh, yeah, I think the Packers should go after this guy or that guy in free agency. I mean, Mm. there's no way to tell this far in advance whether certain guys are even going to be available. And then when it comes to free agency, if, say, for example, if the Packers want to target a veteran pass rusher in free agency, well, the price tag that is going to be attached to that pass rusher is going to be very dependent on you know, how many players of his caliber are available. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's supply and demand. And there's always going to be a demand for pass rushers. It's a premier position in the league, just like there will always be a demand for cornerbacks um, and, uh, and for left tackles to protect your quarterback. So with, uh, with the demand at those types of positions, then how many how many guys are available that can actually make an impact and that can can really help you yeah. um if there are only one or two the price tag on those guys in free agency is going to be astronomical and mm. you have to decide <laughs> you have to decide you know okay what do we really think what do we really think this player is worth because the market can sometimes you know inflate a guy's price tag just because there aren't that many of him available in terms of, you know, being able to sign and, and how much are you going to compromise, you know, your salary cap and available resources for other types of players in order to get, you know, this one special piece, you have to make sure that that really is, you know, a, a, a special guy who is worth it. So um, all of those questions, you know, aren't going to be answered until we get to the middle of March when we actually see who's available, who's on the market and, uh, and, you know, what the price tag looks like. And then again, the other question, as far as who are the Packers going to going to go after in the draft? I mean, we haven't, uh, we're just now getting to, you know, the college all-star games, the NFL scouting combine is coming up at the end of next month. There's a lot, there's a a lot that'll go into the pre-draft process between now and then, and also what the Packers roster is going to look like when the draft rolls around, not only with decisions they have to make on some of their own players, players with expiring contracts, et et cetera, but then also who who the Packers might sign in free agency in, in March and April leading up to the draft to where, okay, this is what your roster now looks like heading into the draft. Not to say that you, you know, that you're just plucking, players to uh to draft for need 
but um but need at certain positions factors into the equation when you're looking at the draft board and who's available. If you, if it's the Packers turn to pick at number 12 overall in the first round at the end of April, and they've got, you know, three players that they've all got rated, you know, very similarly in terms of talent and, and ability and everything like that. Mm. But if one of those players is at a, is at a greater position of need, that need is what's going to break the tie in terms of, in terms of selecting that best available player. And right now with the changes that are going to happen on the roster between now and the end of April, you know, there's, there's no, there's no way to know exactly what uh, the needs are going to look like. So as those questions continue to come in, you know, people don't like to hear, you know, well, let's wait and see, let's wait and see. There's going to be a time to answer those questions, but in the middle of January, it's to to try to answer those questions with any, you know, with, uh, with any real meaning and, and, forethought into it you, you're you're kind of kidding yourself quite frankly yeah it's kind of like um you know these mock drafts and some people are really good at them and the best ones are where they you know they get a, a, a number of different players and they say these are the type of players that they need to go for and we've got a couple of draft gurus here at uk packers who'll do that they'll sort of say okay here's where we're drafting we could go up or down here are the list of needs that we have and here are the players that would fit in around that style i think that's better but the madness that we see online which is the typical internet stuff mike is is that people are doing you know 2020 uh, mock drafts <laughs> you know before the season's right. even played right. out and you're like why why would you do that like why have you really got nothing else to do you should really get a hobby uh, something else other than mock drafts four years down the line and do something else just pure madness um but look Finally, to yourself, the misconception out there, I guess, is with people that work in the NFL is that once the offseason swings around, it's put the boots up, it's drink some coffee, you know, sit down and have a chat with the lads. When really we know that everybody that we talk to that's involved in the game, sometimes stuff only ramps up in the offseason. What's it like for Mike Spofford day to day now? I mean, is it are you delving into the likes of Matt LaFleur's past and, and seeing what he had for breakfast? Are you looking ahead to what needs to be done for the next season? I mean, what sort of sucks up your day now that the season's over? Yeah, well, right. I mean, right now we're definitely, uh, you know, keeping an eye on what's going on in terms of uh, Coach LaFleur filling out his coaching staff. Uh, you know, who who's going to be who's going to be here? I, I get the sense that. Once his uh, coaching staff is complete, then the uh, the new coaches that he hires are going to be made available to the media, and so we'll get uh, you know a day or two to conduct some interviews with them and and be able to uh, to get to know them a little bit and hopefully share some of their stories with the fans and whatnot. So that's really what's going on right now is uh, is just kind of seeing you know who's going to be hired and how uh, how all of this comes together, but then as the off season goes along, you know, there's the scouting combine in Indianapolis, both, both Wes and I will, uh, will go to that as we have for the last few years, you know, you spend four or five days in Indianapolis doing all of the, all of, uh, the pre pre-draft stuff and everything. And then, um, free agency will start in the mid, in the middle of March, like we were talking about before. And then at the end of April, you have the draft, you know, I mean, between now and, and uh, the end of March, you know, I'll take some time off here and there. You know, Wes and I are working out some, you know, okay, you take this week off, I'll take that week off. So that so that one one of us is always here yeah. for a couple of reasons. One, because, because, you know, we do Insider Inbox every day, so somebody needs to be here to write it every day. 
Um, but then also just if, if there's any breaking news, uh, any news that happens that we need to respond to or that we want to get, you know, some more information up on the website, you know, one of us is here to, to react to that and, and to, uh, um, and to take charge of that. So, um, so we work out our, uh, our vacation schedule, so to speak, so that both of us aren't gone at the same time and, uh, and we can continue to continue to write inbox every day and, and, uh, and get the news up there as it, as it happens. So, um, so that's, uh, that's kind of the, uh, um, you know, the, the look from now, you know, winter through early spring. And then once we get into, once we get into May, then you've got, you know, you've got OTAs and mini camp and everything like that in May and June. And then there's another bit of a break. And then by the end of July, you're coming back with training camp and you're starting all over again. So. Well, if any of those holidays involve trips to Ireland or the UK, you know where to find us. <laughs> Pop over. You won't buy a pint for your entire trip here. If anything, Mike, that will save quite a lot of dollars. So, I mean, all I'm saying is just consider it. Um, you've been fan- fantastically generous uh, with your time. Um, so there's definitely a, a regular co-host and job here for if you want it. Uh, but Mike Spofford of Packers.com, uh, you can find him on Twitter. Are you an Instagrammer, Mike? Are you putting up pictures of uh, coffees and, and snacks and you walking off into Lambo around like that, a big, big Instagram guy? No, I don't uh, I don't have an Instagram account. I don't go down that road. And I, I, I'll admit I'm not the most uh, I'm not the most active person on Twitter at all. But I but I do uh, I do have a Twitter account trying to just let people know when there's some good stories out there to read. So. Right, so tune into Packers.com to find Mike the Man. Mike the Man of Mystery will put you because everyone seems to have an Instagram account with at least four pictures of dogs, cats, and what they had for breakfast. And Mike, it was a pleasure to have you on, buddy. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Steve. Good talking to you.